welcome to the Isaiah Thomas episode of the Hoop Theory Podcast, aka episode 11. My name is Logan Wortman, and today we're going to talk about the playoffs, mainly the conference finals slash finals. For context, today is Tuesday, May 31st, so the conference finals are officially over, and the finals are officially going to start... Honestly, I don't even know when game one is. Let me check that. Game one is on Thursday, I guess, June 2nd. So in a couple days here. So hopefully I can get this out before then. I don't know though. But yeah, let's just get into basketball. So obviously the finals matchup this season in the 2022 NBA playoffs is going to be the Golden State Warriors versus the Boston Celtics. It's the sixth finals appearance in eight years for the Warriors. Um, obviously after going five straight from 2015 through 2019 and then both the seasons of 2020 and 2021 they missed the playoffs and now this year 2022 they're back in the finals they obviously completely obliterated my pick from my most recent upload talking about basketball where i chose the mavericks to come out of the west you know i was kind of thinking the mavericks would beat the warriors because i was really a believer in that mavericks defense and how you know one thing that they love to do and one thing that brings them a lot of success is feeding off turnovers the warriors have always turned over the Ball quite a bit. But the thing I wasn't really thinking about was, you know, one of the big things that the Mavericks had at their advantage in that Phoenix series. The Mavericks were really, really good at basically keying in on specific players, guarding players in isolation, cutting them off from the rest of their team on offense, isolating them, and also doing a good job at, you know, making sure that they aren't efficient in isolation. Basically, just with Chris Paul and Devin Booker is where all that attention was focused. And I didn't think about how this Warriors offense and how the Warriors offense has always been. Um, other than kind of a little bit when they had KD, but even then more so than this Phoenix team. The difference between them and Phoenix is the Warriors offense is built entirely around motion and off-ball action. You know, one of their main ball handlers a lot of times is Draymond Green, a guy who's not a threat to score the ball um, hardly at all. It's basically a bonus or a wild card when he does. The way they like to get players the ball and the way they like to manufacture points, you know, is based around the movement of their superstars off-ball, namely with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson and now Jordan Poole as well and even Andrew Wiggins to an extent you know everybody that's out there is involved in this scheme you know that's kind of the way that Steve Kerr has always handled things there their shooters will draw so much attention running around screens or even setting screens themselves that you know when those screens are set the defenders a lot of times you know they have it in their head that they need a hedge they need to help they need to fight over screens against um, these shooters they can't go under on the screens they can't just you know stick to their man exactly they have to contest that shot and when that's in your opponent head, you're going to see a lot of examples of slight, you know, miscommunications where both defenders will favor the shooter too much in that screening action and the other Warriors player, uh, usually more of a cutter or a bigger guy, you know, like Wiggins or Draymond or Looney or Otto Porter, one of those guys, they'll slip to the basket because their guy left them because he was too worried about Steph Curry getting a wide open three from the corner. So while the Mavericks were really, really good at just keying in on one guy with the ball, stopping that um, and recovering when the ball swung, what they proved to be not very good at or not be able to handle I should say was all the off-ball motion and movement that the Warriors offensive scheme presents so it was a tough look for the Mavericks on a number of occasions but another big thing that came into play I think this would have been a closer series if Luca's teammates would have shot the same way they did in that Phoenix series just based off the top of my head I think there was really only one game that they had a good shooting night as far as those you know ancillary guys like Reggie Bullock, Spencer Dinwiddie, Maxi Kleba, Dorian Finney-Smith, Jalen Brunson, Dwight Powell even, Davis Bertans especially being a spot-up shooter. There was really only one game that they really shot well, and that was the game they won, I believe if I can remember correctly. And there was a few games where they shot just awful. So that was another thing that I think really was a big factor in this series. But yeah, the Warriors proved me wrong. 
to a certain extent. I still don't think that they're quite as good as any of the Warriors teams that won the championship in the past or probably even the 2016 team, you know, that won 73 games in the regular season. I think Clay is going to be a really big difference maker, or I don't know what you want to call him, like an X factor in this series, in the finals, whether he has it going certain games or whether he doesn't. I'm sure there will be a little bit of back and forth with that, like how there has been ever since he's come back from injury. Now over to the Celtics. I'm going to talk about them for a little bit. That Celtics-Miami series went, I, I don't want to say it went like how I I pictured or how I imagined, because it really didn't. In terms of like length of the series it did, a seven game series, I thought it would be pretty close. But the fact that at least like the first four or five games of the series were all like 20 plus point victories was very odd. Like I think Mike Breen said it on the broadcast going into game five. He said that this is probably the most lopsided 2-2 series in NBA history, which I know exactly what he means by that. And I agree. But I also wouldn't call it lopsided because... Like, I, th- I think there's examples of that. You know, you could have a, have a 2-2 series where one team just seems like they were vastly better than the other team or significantly better than the other team, you know, but it's still 2-2 based off of kind of some fluky stuff that came down the stretch of a couple games. You know, two of the games were close and just so happened to be in, you know, the opposite team's favor and the other two games might have been really easy for the other team to win. So, you know, that's a 2-2 series where it's lopsided though, you know, there's one team that's clearly outplaying the other team. But in this one, where when it was at 2-2, it was like one game the Celtics would just get completely run out of the building the next game it would just be flipped around so I would call it more of like the most back and forth 2-2 I don't even know how to describe it in like a one word way but yeah going into the series I really thought it was gonna be like a rock fight with both these teams being so good on the defensive end and I do think in an odd enough way that is kind of what contributed to the series being so you know back and forth in the way that it was because I heard a really interesting theory I guess you could call it to kind of explain that phenomenon and that was just kind of like both these teams being so good on the defensive end and relying on the defensive end to manufacture a lot of their offense and also just bring them success in general throughout the course of a game. The team that is continuously getting more advantageous defensive sets or defensive situations, the odds are going to favor that team much more than the other when they rely so much on their defense to do everything else. And so whoever's defense is doing, you know, the best job, I guess, at first, right out of the gates, or whatever team's offense is making the most mistakes, you know, throwing the most turnovers or stuff like that early on in the game. You know, as soon as you see one team getting in transition and scoring, or just, you know, getting in transition in general, because those are the easiest possessions to score on. And really all I'm trying to say is like defense is a lot easier to play as a team on possessions that are right after a made basket. So if you score, you know, that kind of buys time for at least most of your defense to get settled, to get back to their side of the court and just get set communicate ready prepared for whatever scheme they're trying to execute and that makes that so much tougher on the other team's offense especially when the other team's offense is like not their strength which neither of these teams offense is so then you kind of just see this domino effect or this snowball effect when one of the team's defenses keeps getting put in advantageous situations and continuing to get stops which in turn gets them more transition opportunities which in turn gets them more made baskets which just repeats that cycle and so yeah, I thought that was a pretty interesting theory on it. Seems to make a lot of sense. Probably not quite enough to explain for all of it, but that factored in with a number of other variables. You know, you can kind of start to see how the series ended up the way that it did. And, you know, I picked the Celtics going into the series uh, just because I thought their offense was going to be able to do a little bit more down the stretch of a game, you know, score in the half court sets a little bit more effectively than Miami's offense would. And that was mainly just based on, I think there's a little bit more going on with the Celtics offense. There's a little bit more options there to go to. It's more dynamic, but also I think Boston, 
Dolphins defense is better built, you know, to defend Miami's offense than Miami's defense is, to, is built to defend Boston's offense, if that makes sense. So it was, it was a combination of those two things is why I thought the Celtics would have an easier time scoring in this series. And honestly, I, I think that that is kind of what bore out down the stretch of a lot of games that were closer, which was only really one or two of them, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I think there were two, but one of those close games, Miami won, and that really was just Jimmy Butler. That was his 47 point outing, I believe, in game six. So down the stretch of that game, every time Miami had possession, it was basically just Jimmy get a bucket, and that worked. But yeah, you know, that ultimately started to wear off, I think, down the stretch of game seven, especially with Jimmy Butler playing every second of that game, combined with only having one day off from the last game where he played 45 minutes, I believe. Yeah, Kyle Lowry's getting old. He wasn't able to really, you know, produce um, in this series quite as well as, you know, you would have liked to see from that caliber of player. I thought Victor Oladipo honestly had a, a really good playoff run um, or whatever you want to call it. Kind of a little bit of a comeback season for him. So that's good to see. But yeah, Kyle Lowry, the more I watch him, the more I'm annoyed by him, to be quite honest. I still I still think deep down I like Kyle Lowry as a basketball player. I always used to be more in favor of Kyle Lowry while, you know, a lot of other people hated him for flopping and, you know, all that kind of stuff but I don't know lately I think it's getting worse too just because his other skills on the basketball court are waning you know with his limited mobility and physical ability as he's getting up there in years so a lot of plays it just is like he clearly all his plan there was to fall down and get some contact drawn ultimately just to get a foul called like at the very end of the third quarter in this game seven was probably the most Kyle Lowry play I've ever seen where with like a handful of seconds left instead of taking a last second shot he just fell down and got a call and got some free throws to finish the quarter off but yeah I, I can see the case on both sides you know like how I said I've always kind of viewed him as like you no know, he's just a really smart competitor you know he makes winning plays at all costs he's able to overcome his physical limitations and stuff with his knowledge of the game but then on the other side of the coin you can also say he's literally in the nba and he's literally this successful in the nba solely based off of the fact that he manipulates the rules he's made a career off of manipulating the rules of the game and that can be annoying to some people i can see both opinions to be quite honest with you as for jimmy butler's last second shot in game seven you know there's a little bit of controversy on that i guess there's some people saying that it was a bad shot a lot of people at least that i'm seeing like it feels like most people's opinions on the matter is that it was a good shot like people defending him which i'm not I'm not gonna say it was like a terrible shot like I don't completely hate it if I was a heat fan if I was wanting them to win you know when he let that fly and did that I probably would have been a little bit like hold on like just wait a second you know not that it's like I because I understand the point he got the team there in the first place you know he was the whole reason they were in this position he hit a three in transition earlier in the game and he's you know he's been a clutch player in the playoffs so just let him pull it you know but at the same time he shot like 23 percent from three this season and he's been in the 20s over the last several seasons of his career he's never been a good three-point shooter um, he's made very timely and clutch three-pointers before in his career but I don't know I thought that play it was a little bit a little bit rushed like there was still a lot of time left on the clock like 11 seconds I think something like that and the only Celtic in front of in front of Jimmy in transition was Al Horford who don't get me wrong great defensive player completely capable of recovering and contesting a shot at the rim but you know Jimmy Butler one of the best like just drive to the basket players in the league I really just feel like he should have put his head down and got to the basket he probably could have beat Horford there if not just go up embrace the contact like he does every other play of the game he had one man to beat and it would have just been him in the hoop so in hindsight I 
feel like that was the better play. But again, not going to kill the man over that kind of a decision when his decisions this whole season has brought them the success that it has. Everybody's allowed a little bit of grace for sure. So that's my honest take on it, I guess. But yeah, looking forward into this series though, the finals between the Celtics and the Warriors. I honestly don't know what to choose. Like I know most people are choosing the Warriors and I know I've been picking against the Warriors this entire time other than the Memphis series, but I don't know. I just feel like I slightly lean Boston when I watch these teams. You know, I'm just like Boston, they have more, you know, they have more in the right way. I think they have at least an equally as good offense to score down the stretch of a game, isolation options. And I think this Golden State defense, it definitely isn't bad. You know, when you got Draymond Green as the heart of your defense, but I do think this is the weakest defense that they're going to be going up against this entire playoff run other than in Brooklyn, obviously. You know, they just got off a couple series against much better defenses with Miami and Milwaukee, but this is going to be arguably the best offense that they've had to face this entire time. Depends on what you think of Brooklyn in the playoffs, you know, with a guy like KD, but yeah, I'm not even going to compare it to that because that was a sweep and they completely fell apart, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They didn't have it going in any of the right places. It's going to come down a lot to Warriors shooting. Well, both teams shooting like every game is now, but primarily I feel like it's going to come down quite a bit to whether or not the Warriors are hitting their outside shots because that's going to be hard to cover. But if there's a team in the league to do so, I would think it would be Boston or Miami, either one of those, which it could have been either one of those up until this last game. So I do kind of like Miami a little bit more from a team defense standpoint, defending against, you know, motion and all that kind of stuff, more of the intricacies of defense. But Boston, as far as just physical ability and size across the lineup, switchability, all that kind of stuff, like the basics of defense in the NBA now, I think they have the best defense on the planet. So it'll be interesting to see if that's enough, you know, just having those very, very capable defenders all the way across their lineup versus Miami's ability to kind of morph and adjust and completely, you know, recontextualize around whatever opponent they're going against. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to lean slightly to Boston. I wouldn't be surprised either way. That would be nuts if Boston wins this NBA Finals. It just kind of reminds me of back throughout the season, you know, the whole Tatum and Brown discourse that was going on. People thinking that the Celtics needed to trade Brown before the deadline or, you know, either one of them, Tatum or Brown, because they couldn't play together and, you know, stuff like that because they struggled a little bit out of the gates. But then, you know, as their defense came into form throughout the season, like really ever since January, and I think it's just because defense is so much harder to notice. You know, you don't see like it show up as much in the numbers. You don't see it show up as much like near as much in highlights and stuff like that. So like they were pretty quietly a really good team for a while. You know, they made this vast improvement that a lot of people didn't really notice because it didn't jump off anybody's screen right away because the difference was made just really in their defense. And it kind of reminds me of how on the Mismatch podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, how throughout the season at various points, Kevin O'Connor would uh, open the show off like asking Chris Vernon if he thought that Boston was a serious contender. And the first several times that he asked that question, Verno reacted like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no way, like, you know, completely dismissive of the idea. I I feel like most listeners, including me, the first couple times that he brought it up, I was kind of like taken aback by the use of the word contender, you know, champion finals threat, threat to make it out of the East, you know, something like that. I was kind of like, hmm, I don't think so. There'd definitely be a couple rungs below that, at least back then. But as the season went along, they slowly and slowly climbed the ladder. And even by the end of this regular season, there was still kind of a question mark where it was like, they're one of the top four or, you know, probably three teams in the East, but I don't know about clear favorite. And I think that was even come to as a realization really, really late, like right before the playoffs started. You know, I think even just a couple weeks before the season ended, they were still viewed as like, you know, five or six, somewhere in there 
in terms of teams to make it out of the East, with a lot of people putting Milwaukee, Miami, Philadelphia, even Brooklyn, and some people even talking about Toronto. I don't know if they would put them over Boston, but you know, they were in that mix at that point. I thought the Toronto stuff was a little far-fetched, but nevertheless, they were still an interesting topic. But yeah, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is this is a really odd team to be made. It, it just feels weird. It's kind of surreal to think about how, you know, what everybody's opinion on this team was just a couple months ago and compare that to what we have now with them literally in the NBA finals, you know, and without like any major, I, I shouldn't say any major because Chris Middleton is pretty major injury. I just mean without some huge asterisk, you know, on it, like the Celtics, they won the East, you know, is I guess is what I'm trying to say. It wasn't like Giannis and Jimmy Butler both got injured and stuff like that. Now that I say that, I'm trying to think if Giannis struggled with an injury in the postseason because I know Jimmy did, but they were playing through it. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. The fact is that Boston is in the finals. I guess I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to lean Boston, but it'll be a fun series. Given how things have been in this postseason, I wouldn't be surprised if one team completely obliterates the other one, especially I feel like the more obvious one or the more what, what seems more likely to happen if one of the teams were to be completely dominant, I would probably pick the Warriors to be that team. Uh, that seems like the more likely team to do that. But I also wouldn't be completely blown out of my chair if the Celtics, you know, dominated the series, similar to how they dominated the Brooklyn series, you know? Not to that same exact level, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyways, I'm rambling at this point. So this is, I guess, going to be a shorter episode for you guys. Hope you enjoy. And I especially hope you enjoy these NBA finals. So yeah, basketball is great. I think I ended my last video saying something like that. And I kind of like it. So yeah, thanks for watching, listening, whatever you're doing. I'll see you guys in the next one.